Welcome to this week's episode of the Jewish Diaspora Report. On this week's episode, we look into the Palestinian leadership and if they really want peace with Israel. Let's get started. Since the re-establishment of the modern state of Israel, starting at the very moment of its independence, the state has wanted nothing more than peace and security with its neighbors and has tried to do everything to make that a reality. According to the Israeli Declaration of Independence, signed on May 15, 1948, the Israeli state officially declared, We appeal, in the very midst of the onslaught launched against us now for months, to the Arab inhabitants of the state of Israel to preserve peace and participate in the upbuilding of the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship and due representation in all its provisional and permanent institutions. We extend our hand to all of our neighbor states and all of their peoples in an offer of peace and good neighborliness, and we appeal to them to establish bonds of cooperation and mutual help with the sovereign Jewish people settled in its own land. The State of Israel is prepared to do and share in a common effort for the advancement of the entire Middle East. This appeal by the newly formed Israeli government for peace with its neighbors has never really stopped even in spite of the far too many attempts to destroy the state by hostile neighboring countries. Israel has repeatedly followed these attacks with extending a hand for peace. Whether it is with a whole country or the Arab inhabitants within its own borders, Israel has attempted to make peace with those who swore never to recognize its existence, often to mixed results. For the purpose of this podcast, we're going to focus on the peace process with the people who now identify as the Palestinian Arabs and their government. However, even though we are not going to speak about all the peace agreements, we want to note the positive results over the years made by the Israeli attempts for peace, which has caused the quiet and cooperative relationship between Israel, Egypt, and Jordan. Most recently, the Israeli government has added normalization of relationships with various Arab neighbors and states under the Abraham Accords. So why is it that Israel can make peace with one-time enemies over and over again, but not the Palestinian people and their leadership? In order to better understand this, we need to see the history of the peace process and how we got where we are today. The first attempt at peace began formally in the early 1970s following the Yom Kippur War between Israel and a number of its Arab neighbors. This was one of the last major formal conflicts between the Arab countries and Israel, with the hopes of removing Israel off the face of the earth. This was the continuation of their goal that started in 1948, the day the modern state of Israel was declared and the War of Independence began. In the 1970s, the United Nations Security Council met to discuss Resolution 338, which declared, The Security Council calls upon all parties to present fighting to cease all firing and terminate all military activity immediately, no later than 12 hours after the moment of adoption of this decision. Calls upon all parties concerned to start immediately after the ceasefire, the implementation of Security Council Resolution 242 in all of its parts immediately and concurrently with the ceasefire negotiations start between all parties concerned under the appropriate auspices aimed at establishing a just and durable peace in the Middle East. Following the call from the UN, Egypt and Israel accepted this resolution, but Syria, Iraq and Jordan rejected the resolution outright. This failed resolution led to what is now referred to as the Geneva Conference of 1973. The question surrounding the Palestinian Arabs who had not accepted Israeli citizenship and were formerly living under Arab nations were discussed. I'd like to point out at this time they did not represent themselves because there was no official leadership of the Palestinian people. Until the 1960s, the Palestinians in what we now know as the West Bank were considered Jordanians, and those in Gaza were Egyptians. Prior to this call for Palestinian Arab recognition, 
the Arab nations themselves who are now strongly trying to claim Palestinian Arabs as a unique identity and needing of rights and representation were in full control of those same people without offering them exactly what they are demanding from the world and the Israelis to give them. The Egyptians, Americans, Jordanians and the Soviets hoped that through this conference some sort of international agreement on the Palestinian problem could be reached, especially on which specific group would represent the Palestinians in international affairs. Egypt was in favor of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO, to represent the Palestinians and to join Egypt, Israel, and the United States and other established nations at the conference. Syrian officials even insisted that if the PLO was not represented at the conference, that Syria would not attend. However, Israel and the United States opposed the formal recognition of the PLO at the Geneva Conference because the PLO charter did not recognize Israel's right to exist. Due to this conflict, no representatives from Syria were present at the conference either. Unfortunately, nothing had really been gained from the attempts by the world to find a solution to the Palestinian issues and peace for the Israelis. However, this was not the last attempt. Towards the end of the 1970s, the American president, Jimmy Carter, invited Egypt's President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin to the presidential retreat of Camp David for what was later known as the Camp David Accords. Carter's meeting gave a basic plan for the reinvigoration of the peace process based on the earlier Geneva Peace Conference framework, Arab recognition of Israel's right to exist in peace, Israel's withdrawal from the occupied territories that were gained during the Six-Day War, through negotiating efforts with Arab nations to ensure that Israel's security will not be threatened, and securing an undivided Jerusalem. The framework consisted of three parts. The first part of the framework was to establish the autonomous, self-governing authority of the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip, and to fully implement Resolution 242 from 10 years earlier. The accord proposed by the American president recognizing the, quote, legitimate rights of the Palestinian people, a process that would be implemented guaranteeing full autonomy of the people within a period of five years. The withdrawal of Israeli troops from the West Bank and Gaza was agreed to occur after an election of the self-governing authority to replace Israel's military government. However, the UN General Assembly rejected the framework for peace offered by the Americans, because the agreement was concluded without participation of the UN and the PLO. The UN noted that this agreement did not comply with the Palestinian right of return, self-determination, and the national independence and sovereignty. In December 1978, the UN declared in Resolution 33-28 that agreements were only valid if they were within the framework of the United Nations and its charter and resolutions. The UN rejected more specific parts of the Camp David Accords and similar agreements. The part of the Camp David Accords regarding the Palestinian future and all similar ones were declared invalid by the United Nations. The irony here is that the United Nations, either out of some type of hurt feelings or hatred towards Israel, or even thinking they were somehow helping the Palestinians by rejecting a first step towards peace, rejected the chance of the Palestinian Arabs gaining a number of key things that they had wanted. Was this sabotage to keep the issue of the Palestinians and Israelis going, maybe to be used as some type of weapon against the Israelis, something that is still continuing today in the UN? The major attempt by the Israelis to move the peace process forward was in the 1990s under the Madrid Conference. Hosted by the Spanish, the United States, and the Soviet Union, this was another attempt by the international community to revive the Israeli-Palestinian peace process through negotiations involving Israel and the Palestinians as well as Arab countries, including Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, was very important. Interestingly, even into the 1990s, the Palestinian Arabs were still not speaking for themselves with a unified, independent voice. 
At this conference, the Palestinian team was a joint venture between Palestinians and Jordanian delegations and consisted of Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza. The PLO, or Palestinian Liberation Organization, had not been an official leadership for Palestinian negotiation teams. One of the reasons why Israel and other countries were against the inclusion of the Palestinian Liberation Organization was due to the activity that the group had taken in the Middle East over the last number of years. A couple of years earlier, the PLO had already been kicked out of Jordan for their assassination attempts against Jordanian leadership, which caused them to flee to Lebanon. In Lebanon, the PLO began to destabilize Lebanon and involved itself in the Lebanese-Israel War of the 1980s. They were again thrown out of Lebanon and set up their headquarters in Tunisia. By the 1990s and the Madrid Conference, the PLO was no longer welcome as the unofficial leadership of the Palestinian people. Israel had threatened not to come to Madrid if the PLO representatives or Palestinian Arabs from outside Gaza Strip or West Bank would be invited as part of the delegation. However, the chosen Palestinian delegation was in constant contact with the PLO in Tunis. During the conference, the PLO figures were present backstage to instruct the Palestinian delegation about what they wanted. Some argue that the Madrid conference did not accomplish much in the way of peace between the State of Israel and the Palestinian Arabs. Nevertheless, an example had been made for a future model for peace talks that had been laid down in Madrid. As the Madrid conference represents the first time that all these countries had been gathered face to face, Israel Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir is quoted as saying, quote, With an open heart, we call on the Arab leaders to take the courageous step and respond to our outstretched hand in peace. The head of the Palestinian delegation said, quote, To the co-sponsors and the international community that seeks the achievement of a just peace in the Middle East, you have given us a fair hearing. You cared enough to listen to us. We thank you. Thank you. The bilateral Israeli-Palestinian negotiations eventually led to the signing of the Oslo One Accord on the lawn of the White House in 1993. Finally, under the Oslo Accord, we see peace between the Palestinians and Israelis, in a manner of speaking. Building on the earlier Camp David Accords, the Oslo Accords began following the first Intifada. Under the PLO and its leader Yasser Arafat, the world wanted to see peace between the two sides and put an end to the death and destruction caused by the supposed armed struggle by Yasser Arafat and his followers. Another important aspect of the Intifada was the Palestinian Intrafada, which was an internal cleansing of the PLO and the Palestinian territories under Yasser Arafat's armies. Many Palestinians lost their lives at the hands of Yasser Arafat in order to secure his power over the Palestinian people. This is why between 1991's Madrid Conference and the Oslo Accords, Yasser Arafat and the PLO became the official leadership and spokespeople for the Palestinian people. Throughout the Intifada, he solidified his power through force against his own people. Under the Oslo Accord, we saw Yasser Arafat and the PLO not only get legitimacy as the leadership for the Palestinian people, but they were also given the role to be the Palestinian Authority, an official government body that would soon run elections and create a Palestinian security force. Meanwhile, Israel transferred all responsibility for what is known as Area A and civil and joint security control over Area B to the Palestinian Authority. For more information on this current situation, check out our earlier podcast called The Israeli Apartheid Fraud. The Oslo Accords also brought the security coordination between the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority. Military intelligence coordination officially began in 1996. Following the Oslo Accords, another attempt at peace was tried years later by the United States under President Bill Clinton, also at Camp David. Unfortunately, unlike previous attempts that built on previous small successes, the final Camp David Accord was a complete and utter failure. The failure to come to an agreement was widely attributed to Yasser Arafat because he walked away from the table without making a concrete counteroffer 
and also due to the fact that Arafat did little to quell the series of Palestinian riots that began shortly after the summit. Some suggestions have been made that Arafat had always intended to use the failure of these talks, caused at his own hand, as a pretext to the following violence in Second Intifada against Israeli civilians. Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak portrays Arafat's behavior at Camp David as, quote, performance geared to exact as many Israeli concessions as possible without ever seriously intending to reach a peace settlement or sign an end to the conflict. Clinton also blamed Arafat after the failure of the talks, saying, quote, I regret that in 2000, Arafat missed the opportunity to bring that nation into being, and I pray for the day when dreams of the Palestinian people for a state and a better life will be realized in a just and lasting peace. Dennis Ross, the U.S. Middle East envoy and key negotiator at the summit, claimed that what Arafat really wanted was a, quote, one-state solution, not independent Israel and Palestinian states, but a single Arab state encompassing all historic Palestine. Even the Saudi prince Bandar bin Sultan, no friend to the Israeli state, said during negotiations, quote, If Arafat does not accept what is available now, it won't be a tragedy. It will be a crime. He was pointing out that the Israelis had given Arafat everything possible, and Arafat's walking away was a crime against the Palestinian people. Sadly, there's been little change to the peace process since the early 2000s in the Clinton Camp David Accords. The newly formed Palestinian Authority, formerly the terrorist Palestinian Liberation Organization, has maintained control over the official status of leadership of the Palestinian people. There has been somewhat of a continuation of the Arafat policy of playing both sides of the fence under the current leadership of the Palestinian Authority. Following Arafat's death, the current president Mahmoud Abbas took over leadership and has held that position unelected since 2005. Abbas, like his predecessor, pays lip service to the West and Israel claiming that they're working towards peace however, also supports the actions that undermine Israel and peace. For more information on growing tensions in the West Bank between the Palestinian Authority and terrorist factions in the area, listen to our previous podcast, This Is All the Palestinian Authority's Fault. In an attempt to lower the tensions between the Palestinians and Israelis today, Israel has attempted yet again to seek a peace. According to the Times of Israel, in talks with the Jordanians to end the cycle of violence, Israel had agreed to stop entering Palestinian Authority territory in order to capture terrorist suspects and turn over full authority to the Palestinian security forces in order to handle the threats. As the Palestinian Authority proves itself to be able to successfully handle the terrorist threats, Israel will withdraw further. However, the Palestinian Authority has turned down this offer. The apparent reason for the refusal to regain control over their own area was because if they do remove Palestinian terror groups from their own region, they will be seen as working with the Israelis and lose their already tenuous hold on power. In the end, we've seen a history of Israeli willingness to make peace at any and all costs. Throughout modern history, Israel has made peace with any and all countries that are willing to make peace with them. The Israelis have traded land, technology, and much more to ensure civilians are safe. Even Israel's one-time greatest enemies have become their closest allies. Yet, for some reason, Palestinian peace has been elusive and seemingly further away than ever. There's a quote that I had once read, and I can't remember where I heard it from and who said it. But the quote is that Palestinian leadership has never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. We saw the many attempts at peace that were successful in some ways. Some, sadly, were blocked by the United Nations, but in many ways walked towards the path of peace and coexistence. However, at some point, things seemed to fall apart. One thing that all the previous successful pieces had in common was that they were being negotiated by Arab nations on behalf of the Palestinian people. 
The PLO ensured to make peace when, as part of that peace agreement, it assured them perpetual power in the region and a seat at the negotiating table, but now has completely stalled on peace attempts because any form of peace, working towards safety and coexistence, is now seen as going against the Palestinian people and could risk their own power. It is clear at this point, by their own admission, peace with Israel and securing their own area is not an option. They have created an Israeli-hating monster, keeping their people in hopeless and poor conditions while telling them it's all Israel's fault. Now the Palestinian leadership is unable to control the nightmare that they have unleashed. The Palestinian Authority has spent so much time blaming Israel for their own lack of leadership that they have created a situation where they could never be seen working with Israel for any reason, including working towards a better future for their own people. How can a group that can never be seen working with Israel somehow bring peace at the negotiating table? And how could these leaders, even if they were willing to make peace, ever speak for an entire population that has been brainwashed into saying no to any future state that includes the Jews? I will end this episode with a quote that's really stuck with me. The former Prime Minister of Israel, Golda Meir, first said some version of this, but then it was updated by the Knesset Chairman Benjamin Netanyahu in 2006. Quote, If the Arabs lay down their arms, there'll be no more war. But if Israel lays down its weapons, there'll be no more Israel. This has been another episode of the Jewish Diaspora Report. Don't forget to check us out on social media at jdr.podcast and check out some of our other episodes on your favorite podcast source. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.